Let's turn now in the scriptures to Hebrews chapter 4. Once again, we'll be reading verses 14 to 16. Tonight we'll be focusing on our confidence in Christ as we look this morning at the sympathy of Christ. Now we come to this great theme of the confidence that we have because our Savior is a great high priest. So let's hear now God's word from Hebrews 4 beginning at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this most precious portion of your word that we have come to tonight. We thank you that we have a high priest who ever lives to intercede for us, and we pray that Tonight we would get once again a glimpse of what it means to have a Savior who is at your right hand, the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world, seated upon the throne in glory, reigning and ruling over all things and granting to us the life that is in himself. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with joy thankfulness, and adoration for our Savior tonight as we consider what it means that we might come to him with confidence and boldness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come again this evening to one of the most precious and encouraging portions in the whole Bible. We look this morning at why it is that we, living as we do in the full light and liberty of the new covenant, are to hold fast to the confidence that we have in Christ and the gospel, to hold fast to our confession. We saw how the great temptation for the Hebrew Christians was to turn back to the types and shadows of the law of Moses and how there's a great temptation in every age of church history to turn aside from and to depart from the simplicity of the glory of the gospel freely offered to us in Christ. To turn to something other than the gospel, to something less than the gospel, to something that has no power to transform and to renew and to sanctify and to satisfy us and to bring us safely into the presence of a thrice holy God who reveals himself as a consuming fire. And so the concern is that those who have heard the gospel and those who have professed confidence in Christ, the concern of this whole letter to the Hebrews is that those who have professed confidence in Christ would not give up 
would not turn aside, would not depart from the fullness of the revelation that has come in the person and glorious work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you ever tempted to turn aside, to turn back? If even in your heart, and perhaps we could even say that every time we're tempted to any sin, to that degree, we are tempted to turn aside from the one who shed his blood for our sins. We saw that the book of Hebrews is not only an extended theological argument moving from one premise and one conclusion to the next, but that it's also a sermon. This is intended as a sermon, maybe a sermon a little bit longer than what we're used to, but it's a sermon. It's meant not only to move us and to satisfy us intellectually, the gospel does do that, or to worship God with all of our hearts and minds, and souls, and strength, but it's also meant to draw us in, and to nurture us, and to encourage us, and to stir us up to a deeper and richer experience of faith in Christ, and and of devotion to God, and in our communion and brotherly love toward one another in the church. All of those things are intended here in this letter to the Hebrews. In other words, It's meant to deal with us at the level of our desires and our affections and our wills and to point us to the fullness of joy and the wonder of our access to God in the new covenant. And the way that these verses that we began looking at this morning, the way that these verses do this is by showing us first the greatness of Christ in comparison to Aaron and every other merely human priest that ever ministered in the tabernacle and the temple. Christ is a great high priest because he is a good high priest. He's the one high priest that could be called a great high priest. He's a good high priest, a perfectly righteous and holy high priest who was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. It's not only that he didn't sin, it's that he could not sin. He is the God-man who unites our human nature to the nature of God and the person of God, the Son. And if you notice, I chose Isaiah chapter 6 this evening to read as the parallel passage. John the Apostle in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, identifies the one seated on the throne as Jesus, as the Son of God. That's who we have come here to worship. But furthermore, because Christ has taken our nature to Himself and because He suffered sinlessly for us in our nature, what we saw last time, what we saw this morning, is that He is, present tense, He is right now, able to sympathize with us and with every one of us, with every one of you here tonight, he is able to sympathize with you in your weaknesses, whatever they might be. And they're different for each one of you. Your weaknesses are not my weaknesses. My weaknesses are not your weaknesses. But one thing we can be certain of, there is no one here in this room, that Jesus, the Son of God, who came in our human flesh, is unable 
to sympathize with. And that ought to be of great comfort to you tonight. We saw that his sympathy is not merely the sympathy of heartfelt compassion. It's not merely an emotional kind of sympathy, though Jesus had emotions as a human being. We saw that his sympathy is not merely that heartfelt compassion. It's certainly that, but it's far more than that. It's the omnipotent sympathy of one who is actually able to help us with the kind of help that we so desperately need. Redeeming help. Salvation purchasing help. Sin bearing help. Wrath bearing help. That's the kind of help that we need. And because he became our wrath bearing substitute at the cross, he is now able to stand between us and God bringing us into the very presence of God where we have the most intimate communion that it is possible for us to have in this world under the curse and in these bodies still corrupted by indwelling sin and still groaning under sin's terrible effects. And so here in verse 16... We really have the culmination of it all. It's here that we learn that because we have a great and sympathetic high priest in heaven, we now have childlike access to God by grace and through faith alone. Because Christ, our sympathetic high priest, is in heaven, we have childlike access to God. We hope to see that this evening in three points. First, the ground of our confidence. Second, the glory of our confidence. And third, the grace of our confidence. Let's look first at the ground of our confidence. The ground of our confidence follows logically and experientially from the greatness of Christ's priesthood. Dear children, when we talk about the ground of something, we're talking about what supports it. We're talking about its basis. We're talking about its foundation. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, that the wise man builds his house upon a rock. Sometimes I go with my children to the beach. We live in Virginia Beach, and so we spend perhaps more time than you do at the beach. And my children build a sandcastle at the beach, The water comes quickly and washes it away and it crumbles and it's gone. It doesn't take long. The wise man builds his house upon a rock. It's built on something that can't possibly... uh, A house built on sand has no solid foundation, no solid basis. It's built on something that can't hold the weight that is placed upon it. In order for us to have confidence which is really the idea that's being expressed here in verse 16 by that word boldness, in order for us to have confidence, we need to know that there is a sufficient ground, a sufficient basis, a sufficient foundation for our confidence. Let's say that you go to the refrigerator, as I have at times, and you pull out a gallon of milk and you see that the date on the milk container is past its expiration. How confident are you going to be that you should drink that milk? 
If it were me, I would open the top and take a good whiff of that milk before guzzling it down. Maybe that's just me, though. But what if you're talking about the basis of your confidence for approaching God? What we read here comes to us in the form of an exhortation, but it really also has the character of a promise. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. Let us come. It's an exhortation. But in another sense, it's a promise. We can come. God is saying, you can come. Because Jesus is there in God's presence. Let's stop and consider these, mo- these words for a moment. Notice first the word, therefore, and that word points us back to what has already been said. And what has already been said provides us with the basis or the ground of our confidence. You and I have no basis whatsoever to enter God's presence with confidence. That's really the whole underlying assumption. That's the underlying assumption of the whole revelation contained in the Old Testament Scriptures. That's the underlying assumption of the law of Moses and the whole system of tabernacle and temple worship. It is impossible for sinners to approach a holy God. That's what the old covenant system was saying to God's people all along. It was one big picture show, as it were, of that reality. All of the pictures of the Old Covenant, Tabernacle and Temple, were saying it is impossible for anyone to approach a holy God without a mediator. And this is the danger, isn't it, of any form of occultism or mysticism or New Age kinds of religion. What is it that they all have in common? They all have this in common. Really all the world's philosophies and systems have this one thing in common. You can get to God, whatever you call God, whatever you want to call God, you can get to God without a mediator. You don't need Jesus. That's what the world, in all of its philosophies, in all of their forms, in all of the the ideologies of this world, Every single one of them is saying the same thing. You can get to Jesus. You can get to God without Jesus. You don't need a mediator. You shall be as gods. Don't believe the lie, dear children of God. It is impossible for sinners to approach a holy God. It was for just that reason that the throne of God, the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, was hidden from view in the Mosaic system. You couldn't see it. You never saw it. Only the high priest, once a year, ever saw it. Not even, no sinner could approach God with confidence, you see. Not even the high priest could approach God with confidence unless he did so in exactly the way appointed by God, dressed in the holy garments with the the bells ringing, having been consecrated with water and carrying with him the blood of atonement. Without that blood of atonement, without that sacrifice, no one could enter the presence of God. 
And even the high priest could only have that confidence on a single day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Keep in mind that the language here in the book of Hebrews is language that reflects these Old Testament realities and expectations. The words, let us come, are really exactly identical to the priestly language in the Old Testament, which was the idea of drawing near. In the book of Leviticus, the high priest would draw near to God on the Day of Atonement. But the same chapter of Leviticus, chapter 16, that describes this for us, begins with, do you know how it begins? Children, I bet some of you do know how it begins. It begins with a warning about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who did what? They drew near to God in their own way and with their own glory in view. And what we read of them is that they were struck dead for their arrogant presumption in drawing near to the Lord in their own way. They were priests of God. And yet they dared to approach God on the basis of their own ideas and their own assumptions about who God is and how He is to be worshipped. And isn't that so often the case, even among Christians, that we dare to approach God on the basis of our own assumptions about His character, our own assumptions about how He desires to be worshipped. They had confidence, but it was false confidence. They had boldness, but it was the boldness of shameless pride, not the boldness of true faith in God. But here, we're given great reason and a wonderfully solid basis for confidence in drawing near to God. And you see, you begin to see here the glory and the wonder and the astonishment of the new covenant system of worship in contrast with the old. It's this very same word that we find in chapter 7, verse 25, where we, we have these deeply comforting words, therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right there, dear brothers and sisters, is the ground and the basis for this confidence. A confidence born not of pride and not of presumption, but a confidence born of faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Do you have this confidence, dear believer? Do you have this childlike confidence in God through Christ? Can you say from the heart that Christ and all that is in Him is mine because I am His. And for that reason, I have great reason for confidence, boldness to draw near to Him through His blood on the basis of His death for me and on the solid ground of His present mediatorial intercession for me in the very throne room of Almighty and thrice holy God. Can you say that? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and is seated at God's right hand who has finished his work of atonement and who is is there pleading his blood for us. Who is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he himself was tempted yet was not overcome by temptation. 
We conclude with the Word of God then. That we have a firm basis and a solid ground for approaching God in confidence through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. That brings us to our second point. The glory of our confidence. The second thing that we need to consider tonight is what it means for us to draw near to the throne of grace. What does it mean to draw near to the throne of grace? We can sometimes fail to see the full significance and the wonder of what we're reading and hearing in the Scriptures because the words themselves are so familiar to us. We read them. We hear them again and again. But consider for a moment what it means that you and I, as the children of God, as those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ and have access to God through Him, what it means that we can confidently approach the throne of grace. Have you thought about this much? First of all, notice what this throne is not. It's not called here a throne of judgment. It's not called a throne of judgment. And and this is the first aspect of the glory of this confidence that we have in Christ. This is in complete contrast to the worship of God in the Old Covenant. This aspect of boldness and confidence is something totally new, something totally distinct, especially for the individual worshiper. Because we are now kings and priests, you see. Able to approach God. Able to approach God in a way that no one ever was able to do in the Old Covenant. This aspect of boldness is something new. It's something distinct. It's not something we find in the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. There were, there were glimpses of it, especially in the Psalms and the prophets, but this confidence is so glorious and so wonderful in comparison to what God's people had under Moses that it's called the liberty of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's this liberty that we have now in Christ. This liberty that we have in Christ And in our access to God through Him is a worship of God without any need for veiled faces. That's what Paul says there. And that refers to the veil that Moses had to put over his face when he came down from the mountain because he had been in the very presence of God. And he had spoken to God face to face, as it were. But when he came down, the people were not able to bear the sight of even the reflections of the radiance of God's glory remaining on Moses' face, you see. In the worship of the Old Covenant, there was not this aspect of liberty. In comparison, the believer's approach to God was one characterized by fear and bondage because judgment and condemnation were very much in the air. The thunderings and the lightnings. John Owen puts it, everything was done at a distance in the Old Covenant. There was this dreadfulness about the presence of God because sin had not yet been fully and finally dealt with in Christ. But now in Christ, all of that is taken away, dear brothers and sisters. Christ was born under the law in order to set us free from the law's condemnation and curse. Christ became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ submitted Himself to judgment and wrath so that we might live without the fear of the guilt 
of the fearful expectation of judgment that our sins so rightly deserve. And so the first thing that this this confidence that we have in Christ does is it takes away that kind of fear which would keep us from ever seeing God as a father rather than as a judge. That is wonderful. That is so wonderful. And perhaps you don't have the greatest experience of a father's love. I'm sure in a congregation of this size there are some. I can speak from experience. Having been abandoned in a hotel room at three years old by my mother and father, my biological mother and father. Perhaps you don't know that experience of of a father's love. Or perhaps you do. Perhaps you do know what it's like to be loved by a father. And I hope you children do know what it's like to be loved by a father in a covenant home where the word of Christ is faithfully taught. But even so, even that love that you experience in in a covenant home because of sin is so, so dim in comparison to the wonder and the glory and the radiance and the majesty and the splendor of the love of God the Father for His children through Jesus Christ. It's not all. The second thing that this confidence does is it brings us very near to God in Christ. It brings us, in fact, as near to God as we can possibly be. Have you ever thought about that? In Christ, we have the liberty and the boldness to cry out to God as children to their Father. By the Spirit who now dwells in our hearts by faith, we cry out, Abba, Father. Tenderness and affection is now so much in the air. I just finished preaching a series through Psalm 23. The psalm begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It begins in a pasture. It ends in a palace. That dirty, filthy sheep is invited into the place, going through the valley of the shadow of death, being led, comforted, even in affliction, being led to a table, hosted by the king, and welcomed in to the dwelling place of God forever. What dirty, filthy sheep could ever say that was brought into the house of the king? Do you see the wonder of what we have in Christ? That we're able to say, God is my Father and I am His Son. And I use that language of sonship not in order to say that women also don't have that same access to God because you do. But the language of sonship is the language of inheritance. It was the Son who had the double portion. And each one of us, dear brothers and sisters, is a son in the Son with a double portion of the Lord's blessings. Each one of us has everything that Christ could possibly give to us. Do you see what that confidence does? Not only does it take away the guilt and the fear that would consume us because of the greatness and the weight and the infinite magnitude of our sins against God, but it does far more than that. It takes away the fear that God cannot or might not accept us. 
except me, except you. That fear, that fear is a proper fear. That fear is a necessary fear. That fear is the fear of those who are yet under the bondage of the law. And remember, the law is good and holy and spiritual, Paul says. The problem is not with the law. The problem is not with God. The problem is with our sin, which the law rightly and justly condemns. The law was meant to point God's people to Christ and to their great need for a high priest who would take away their sin and their guilt upon themselves. Upon himself. And every sinner... Every sinner needs to feel the weight of that and feeling the weight of that to be driven out of himself and to cast himself fully and freely upon his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see ourselves for what we are. We need to see ourselves in the vileness and the wretchedness and the guilt and the shame and the filth and the condemnation of our sin. We need to feel that if we are ever left to ourselves, if we are left in our sins, then there is absolutely no hope whatsoever for us. And that's exactly what the law does. And that is all that the law in and of itself, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, can ever do. But the glory of this confidence that we have is that Christ has forever silenced all of the law's threats. You see. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did in the flesh of His Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. And what that means is that you and I, if we are in Christ, if we have rested our confidence entirely upon Christ and the perfection of His merit and the greatness of His mediation as our high priest and the efficacy and the atoning power of His sacrifice, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we have acceptance with God. We have it. It's a present possession. God accepts us as righteous in His sight on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God acquits us of our sins. He never looks at them again in order to hold them against us. As one who, perhaps the only one in this room, who's ever faced a judge and been found guilty of a crime and been punished, been placed in prison, I was converted in a prison cell, in a solitary confinement prison cell. Those words, acquitted, are such wonderful words. That word, acquitted, is so wonderful. Is it wonderful to you? Acquitted. No more guilt ever again. Christ has taken it all upon Himself. He never looks at our sins again in order to hold them against us. He wipes them all away as if we had never offended Him in the slightest or committed the least transgression of His holy law. Is that wonderful to you? Or as Calvin so sweetly puts it, we must hold to this principle 
that Christ is not really known as a mediator except all doubt as to our access to God is removed. Otherwise, the conclusion here drawn would not stand. We have a high priest who is willing to help us. Therefore, we may come boldly without any hesitation to the throne of grace because it's not a throne of judgment. The glory of our confidence is Christ himself and the access to God the Father that we have through faith in him. That brings us to our last point. The grace of our confidence. All of this naturally leads us to the question, what does it mean for us to boldly approach the throne of grace? Children, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? I'm sure you understand already that what is most important is not so much the throne, but the one who sits on that throne. But you and I can't see the throne of God. What does it mean for us to draw near to it in the confidence that we have a high priest who is able and willing to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses? You can't see it. You can't see the one who sits upon it. And perhaps your parents and perhaps your elders have again and again and again taught you about this throne and taught you about the one sitting upon the throne. But still, you're asked the question, can I see God? And you constantly have to say, no. But He always sees me. And He does. And He sees you as His child. And He sees you as one who is in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are in His Son, Jesus Christ, then He sees you without sin. He sees you in the righteous robes of His Son, our Savior. The first thing that we need to realize is that in the Greek language, what we actually read here is keep on coming to the throne of grace. The exhortation is to keep on coming and coming and coming again and again and again to this throne, which is a throne of grace. And as we come, we will surely find, we will surely find, we cannot help but find, we must find the mercy and the grace that we need. Notice, first of all, that the throne, though it is in heaven, and though we can't see the one seated upon it, is nevertheless outside of us, not inside of us. The Holy Spirit who is in us, unites us to the throne. And it's by him and through Christ, our high priest, that we're able to boldly approach God as our smiling father and not as a frowning judge. This throne is a throne of grace. But how do we approach it? Not by looking within or seeking to come with the right feelings or the right heart dispositions. That kind of confidence would be a false and fleeting confidence. I have to come with the right feelings to God. How often do I have the right feelings? Perhaps not often at all. Does that mean I can't come? But you see, that's what we do when we tell ourselves that the way of believing the promises of God and of resting on those promises is too easy. When we do that, we're 
were acting like Naaman the Syrian. You remember him, children? He, he thought that when he was told to bathe in the Jordan River, that there were better rivers and that the Word of God needed to make sense to him before he could believe. It's in that way that we subtly rely on our own thinking rather than on the promises of God. It's not that way that we come. You see, dear brothers and sisters, the Lord grants the greatest comfort to our hearts when our faith is in Him and in His promises, not in anything in us, not in anything accomplished by us. Our standing before the throne of God is not dependent on anything that God sees in us, but only on the mercy and the grace that are always everlastingly in Jesus Christ, His Son. And understanding that, and truly embracing and believing it, is what produces the comfort and the assurance that you and I so desperately need. It's only in that comfort and in that assurance that we will be able to come boldly, confidently to the throne of grace and to seek there the mercy and the grace that we need. Looking outside, not inside. And so how do we come? How do we draw near to this throne of grace? By remembering and resting on the ground of our confidence, which is Christ and Christ alone. Robert Trail says it well when he says, there is more of grace in the promise then there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. There is more of grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. You are coming to a throne. And that means that it's a place of great power and authority, but it's also a throne of grace. And that means that there is inexhaustible mercy and grace to be found there. The present and perpetual high priestly ministry of Christ should give you the confidence that you need to keep coming and to keep coming and to keep coming again and again and again for the pardoning and sanctifying grace freely dispensed from this throne. Do you ever think, I can't come because of my sin? I want you to think just the opposite. Because of my sin, I must come. I can do no other. I have to come. And he tells me that I can. And so I come on that basis. You have a friend and a brother in the very throne room of God. And there is mercy seated upon that throne in the person of Jesus Christ. Mercy is that kindness of God by which he doesn't give us what we deserve. And grace is that kindness of God by which He gives us what we don't deserve. We have at God's right hand in our sympathetic Savior, Jesus Christ, a high priest, who is both the mercy and the grace of God in Himself. And so knowing this and believing this, let us draw near to Him by taking hold of His promises and by heartfelt prayer and worship trusting in Him to sympathize with us in our need and to give us exactly what we need in exactly the measure and exactly the proportion and exactly the time that we need it. Because we have a great and sympathetic high priest in heaven, we now have childlike access to God by grace and through faith alone. 
Let me close with this. The biographer of a well-known New Testament Greek scholar says that he was speaking to his students of the great tenderness and sympathy of Christ for sinners. And when that professor left the classroom, a student followed him into his study where he found the professor surrounded by his books and with tears streaming uncontrollably down his face. The professor looked up and could only say, and to think, and to think, he is the same Jesus now. He is the same Jesus now. There's no need that you have that he does not already know. There's no prayer that he is unwilling to hear There's no sin that He's unwilling to forgive. There's no promise in the Scriptures that He's unable to fulfill. Draw near to Christ in your need. Draw near to Him with the confidence of faith as a child of God with access through Christ to the very throne of grace. And then, seek mercy and grace from Him who is the fountain of every blessing and the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, how we thank You for Christ, who is not only full of mercy and grace, but who is in Himself the mercy and grace that we need. How we thank You that He is seated in heaven for us, And that he ever lives for us to intercede for us. How we thank you, O Lord, that our sins are wiped away. Our transgressions are cleansed through his blood. And we pray that you would give us confidence and boldness. Day by day. Lord's day after Lord's day all the days of our lives, of our pilgrimage in this world, that you would give us the grace that we need to come and to keep coming, recognizing that he is full of an inexhaustible fountain of grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.